Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Uh, today on the podcast, we have uh, Janini Badja. Welcome, Janini, to the show. Thank you for having me. You're I'm so very welcome. excited. Awesome. Um, I'm going to start today with uh, another sort of uh, acknowledgement, a uh, land acknowledgement of sorts. Um, folks will be familiar from this podcast that I'm, 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 I'm quite open about my executive functioning deficits and lack of working memory. And, uh, I, I tell podcast guests often if, if it's an academic, uh, sort of interview, I have to read all their, all their journals sort of the night before the morning of, if I'm going to remember what I'm asking those sorts of things. Anyway, point being, um. I've got something somewhat fresh in my head from last night. Uh, last night I had uh, the privilege of attending, um, it's uh, it's Truth and Reconciliation Month here in, in Canada, mm-hmm. and really it's Truth and Reconciliation Year, or century it should be, um, but the 30th is, truth, is sort of the Truth and Reconciliation Day, okay. and for those that aren't familiar with that sort of phrase, I highly recommend just Googling it, but uh, essentially... There was a truth and reconciliation uh, sort of inquiry panel that, over over a large number of years, with uh, in, uh, investigations and interviews of Indigenous folks from all over Canada, uh, Turtle Island, and um, and they came up with um, two hundred and seventy odd or something. Maybe that's too many. It's either two hundred and seventy or ninety three. Anyway, <laughs> calls to action uh, for the government, but for and but also for uh, citizens and whatnot in terms mm-hmm. of reconciliation. Um, but yesterday I had a, a, a lovely opportunity to attend a, a webinar sort of discussion with um, a colleague of mine, Jen Ashley. And Jen Ashley is a, a BCBA here in uh, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's also uh, a Métis um, and, uh, and Cree, I believe. At least she was speaking Cree. Um, she did just a wonderful, wonderful presentation, um, on, um, you know, just on, on sort of truth and reconciliation activities. And she talked about things like, um, uh, uh, uh her slides, things like uh, everything for the kind of the medicine wheel and sort of these, these, she talks about these eight paths, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, uh, sort of take um, and there's, there's the universe path which is sort of this broad view of indigenous belief systems spirituality mm-hmm. our place in the universe she talks about all our relations and connections with everybody else thought mm-hmm. um, sort of dissecting western thought as a dominant view mm-hmm. pain in the heart which i think is probably fairly clear in, cer- in terms of the harm and hurt of past and present language which uh, you know obviously connecting to cultural meanings and traditions being aware of the present moment something which is familiar to a lot of listeners who are, you know, in, in sort of the, the, the act circles, um, mm-hmm. beauty, shifting the narrative to celebrate and encourage indigenous strength, cultural culture and resurgence, and then what actions we can take for change. And then she kind of took us through a bunch of exercises, kind of pick your your favorite path, as it were, or your sort of the path that kind of means the most to you. And for me, it was the beauty one, sort of shifting the narrative to celebrate and encourage indigenous strength, cultures and resurgence, something that I've really learned 
which has been you know awesome uh, from in the last couple of years is um, how many amazing unique perspectives there are kind of culturally kind of worldwide mm-hmm. um, um, you know and uh, and in particular certainly uh, you know black and indigenous perspectives have been really mm-hmm. eye-opening and enlightening and exciting and just amazing to see kind of the the good work not just in our own field but just across fields and and uh yeah um uh arts in particular uh indigenous art is just amazing beautiful stuff absolutely um yeah so anyway i think i might might just say my gratitude to jen for putting that on she's doing a second one next week on, on the 22nd uh i will uh you know no one's gonna, no one's gonna know this by the time this episode comes out. But I'll, I'll, I will, I will be sharing this on my, on my social media and whatnot because I think folks should really come out. Um, it was really powerful, and she finished it off with a, a, a song, mm-hmm. uh, with a traditional drum, which was just amazing. Um, it was so cool. Um, so I'm really, you know, just grateful. I'm, I'm here on, on the lands of the Tlamin, uh, Homoko Komox, and Klahus people, I think. Um, uh, these were they were actually all one one nation before mm-hmm. uh, colonizers came and split them all up into different parts mm-hmm. of the world. But um, anyway, really, really grateful to be here on, on the lands and, and to be able to sort of start to kind of connect with some of the spirituality components of all that. And uh, yeah, I'm just just enjoying the growing and learning. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful to be here and super grateful to Jen for sharing her work and folks should watch out jen's going to be doing kind of more of this stuff i think she's talking about doing some like monthly kind of uh wasn't support groups it was almost like a kind of almost a almost like a a working group to just you know talk Mm -hmm. this this kind of stuff out and work on these sorts of issues uh, across the board which i think is really cool she kind Mm -hmm. of identifies she identifies as a as a indigenous behavior consultant and a decolonial facilitator which i thought was um, mm-hmm. Yeah, doing some really cool stuff. And, and there's only I only know of like maybe three, four, five indigenous BCBAs in all of Canada. I'm, I'm sure there's more of you out there, but not too many, I don't think. And so probably not. Opportunity. Yeah, yeah. But there's a few more in the states, I think. But you just you guys have you know ten times our population, so it's a given that you're probably going to have maybe ten times the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 folks. Well, it's not a given actually. Representation doesn't really work with indigenous folk uh, all that well. No. Um, yeah. Anyway, just grateful to be here and, and grateful to have uh, Janini today. This has got to be, I feel like this is like try 15 for us. Possibly, to the, yes. To, to, <laughs> to get this going. Um, you know, the first time, the first couple times, I think maybe they were just sort of scheduling things. Then we had some technical difficulties. And then I think we had some more technical difficulties. Today, we were supposed to start this interview a good, well, Almost, almost an hour ago, but I spent the last hour um, relocating my entire studio into my unfinished basement electrical room, uh, which I think could end up being a permanent spot, strangely enough. It doesn't, it's not really all that attractive behind me, but I think it's really well muffled in, in terms of sound, and that's kind of the reason I'm in here. I've, I've been involved in more of the... I've been in more of all the, the background editing and noise scrubbing, and it's quite annoying to do that work. And so if I can get rid of it in the first place, <laughs> that might be kind of cool. But I'm Always. Gonna, I'm going to need to put some walls in, I think, at some point. Anyway, we'll get to it. 
anyway, it's finally happened. Uh, we can hear each other. We're, we're recording, so this conversation is going to happen. I actually posted on social media last week how excited I was for this conversation, and it was happening right now, a week ago, and I didn't actually take that down, so... <laughs> so it, it, it never even happened and everyone loved it and liked it and whatever but that's amazing it didn't even exist but here we are now in reality so um let's just get right to uh kind of the reason i brought janini on was um for just sort of a general broad umbrella talk of of, of sort of gender and and all and how and how that kind of construct uh you know, plays in our world, plays in our field, um, you know, mm-hmm. I think focusing heavily maybe on the fact that it is just a construct, although a lot of folks, you know, that, that, that that's a very left-wing word, I think, for some folks, <laughs> uh, even, your, I, even your big words. I think uh, it might be left of left-wing even. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, you know, I mean, there are so many things that I think, uh, you know, and I, I won't go too political, but I think there's so many things that a lot of folks think are, you know, set in stone, but they're all just constructs. They're mm-hmm. not even re- real things. Um, they're just things that have been sort of shaped through our, our learning histories and contingencies and whatnot. But they don't have Absolutely. to be what they are. So, and so I think we're going to have some fun kind of breaking some of that stuff down. But before we get into that, maybe uh, just uh, a, a bit of a story of, of kind of how you got into the behavior analysis field and, and, uh, and, and where you are today. Sure. Uh, so I'm Janani, my pronouns are they, them. Uh, I'm a board certified behavior analyst currently based in Chicago. Uh, I teach at National Lewis University's ABA department. Um, and I'm also an affiliate researcher with Emily Sandoz's lab, the Louisiana Contextual Science Research Group. Um, that's probably the shortest, most succinct intro I've done in a minute. Um, but yeah, those are kind of my main jobs at the moment. Um, I Let's see, getting into behavior analysis, this is always uh, a fun quote-unquote story because um, <laughs> it's uh, almost, it's so ridiculous, even fiction writers would be like, that's, that doesn't sound like it could happen. Uh, but, uh, Google, I was in undergrad, (laughs) uh, I was in undergrad and I was looking at options for what I wanted to do, um, outs, not outside of psychology, but like with, you know, extend, um, extension of psychology. I knew I didn't want to be a therapist at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I Googled, how do you study how, how does one scientifically study human behavior? Um, an ABA popped up. Uh, uh, so I definitely didn't enter this field knowing much about it. Um, specifically its context in North America. Um, although I did study here. So, (laughs) um, that was kind of, that was kind of where it all began. So I applied to a bunch of grad schools. I got, I did the master's program from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology here. Uh, I graduated in 2015 and got my BCBA that year Um, and worked with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities here in uh, within organization here in Chicago for a while. Um, 
and then moved back to India for a few years where I did a lot of consultation gigs primarily uh, as a BCBA um, and started uh, spending more time in research um, and then moved back here recently to take on this teaching job. So, yeah, that's uh, that's an overview. All right. Well, we'll definitely put that link in the show notes. It's a website. It's called Google, and you can learn about things from it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll put the link to Pretty that fantastic. Sure if, if folks aren't familiar mm-hmm. with that one. <laughs> That's wicked. Uh, with, um, uh, curious about uh, – I love that. That's, that's the, the best the best one yet. Uh, there's, been some, <laughs> there's been some roundabout routes to behavior analysis um, um, that some have, some have taken that have been interesting, but certainly – Starting with Google is is the best. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There's ever a time Google has actually paid off. Uh, personally, for me, it's definitely been in this one. Although maybe not the the focus topic today. Um, I'm. I, you're also the first uh, guest I've had on uh, that's done any, any any kind of ABA work in India. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious what. I mean, I know India is a massive place, and with you know, I think over a billion people now themselves, and um, mm-hmm. and, and and I know just sort of surface level from mm-hmm. you know a couple of my best friends in in college were East Indian, and so I kind of got a little bit of a perspective from them. Uh, one guy was was, mm-hmm. was was Hindi, and he kind of had his that perspective. Another guy was. Um, uh, kind of had a not not that religion is the only thing going on in India, but he was he was more of a, a his parents were more from a Christian background. I think they were from the north. Um, mm-hmm. What did they, what was the place called? Start with K or C? Uh, Kari, uh, Calcutta? No, no, it was it was it was somewhere in the, somewhere in the north. Not not not. It wasn't as big. It sounds like Korea somehow. Not I know it's not Korea. Uh, Karia? No, I don't know. Who knows? Um, Steve, if you're listening, which you probably don't listen to these podcasts, but um, uh, send me an email sometime. Don't where your folks are from. <laughs> um, 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 uh, but I, I know it was a, it was a kind of more. I think it was a more predominantly sort of English area related. Oh, really. Kerala. Thank you, Kerala. That's the one. Kerala yeah. is down south. Oh, it's down <laughs> south. Oh my gosh. Well, there uh-huh. you go. That's where I, that's where I lost it. Then why did I think north? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, Kerala. Exactly. That's where it was. Um, yep. And so there was sort of kind of some some different stuff there. Uh, so I, I know there I know I know it's it it it's a, a, I think a lot of folks probably sort of outside of India would lump everybody in India into one big you know um, you know sort of uh, homo, homogeneous sort of um, um, a label. Whereas India is so got so many different things going on culturally and, mm-hmm. and religiously mm-hmm. and, and and politically depending on where you are in the country, but. So, so I mean, I know that your perspective, you know, is is just going to be one for sure. Even working in ABA mm-hmm. down there, but I'm curious what sort of I I only know of a few sort of Indian BCBAs. Um, mm-hmm. um, what, what's it like doing ABA in India? What's uh... so I never ended up working directly uh, in ABA in India. It was more like consultation stuff and supervision and things like that. Mm. Um, it's not obviously not as well established there, but it is getting, it's grown significantly since when I started grad school, for example, nearly a decade ago. 
Um, so at the time that I got certified, I was the officially third BCBA in the country. Um, which sounds a lot fancier than it is, but like for a couple of reasons, right? Like a lot of people from my observation has been that a lot of people were at the time pursuing their BCABA because financial reasons, it was just, you know, whatever, uh, more accessible. Mm. Uh, so you had a lot more BCABAs than BCBAs. Um, it, uh, there's a few people, so there's an ABA, uh, there's an ABA India, mm-hmm. um, so they have an India chapter and they've done conferences and things like that a couple, a few times. Um, there's a lot more people now soliciting services and things like that. But again, it's a function of like, do they have the financial cap- capacity to uh, seek those services? Because it's not something that's usually provided. Like insurance does not cover it for sure. Um, and again, like a lot of people in India don't have insurance anyway, because it doesn't, the system's not the same as it is sure. uh, in sure the States or even in Canada. Um, so it's growing slowly, but surely, uh, primarily it is, um, work with, uh, early childhood intervention, uh, work with, um, kids with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Um, there's a couple of prominent, um, there's a couple of prominent organizations, uh, in one in Bangalore and they have like, uh, they also have clinics in Delhi and Chennai, I believe. So like spread out. Mm. Um, and uh, there's also quite a few ACT folks in India. Mm. In fact, more ACT folks in India than ABA. Um, yeah. So there's quite a few ACT folks in India as well. Um, so it's growing. Uh, it'll probably take a lot longer. Um especially with the changing standards and things like that. So mm-hmm. when I went to graduate school, for example, uh, the board was overseeing everyone's certification. So you could practice as a BCBA outside of the U S and Canada, mm-hmm. if you got certified in an accredited, whatever. And like, if you took the exam, you sure. were eligible to take the exam. If you took the, did the VCS and all of that thing, uh, which obviously since 2022 is no longer the case. So, um, the uh there's the IBAO yep. uh i believe that does international accreditation and certification um for behavior analysts right now so that's what a lot of people are pursuing they're still in the process of pursuing sort of like uh setting up in an independent yep. uh sort of certify certification board and things like that so that's probably a little further mm-hmm. away but right now the IBAO would be uh would be what people start pursuing um, there to do behavior analytic work. Um, So that's kind of where it's at. I didn't get, so I didn't go back and like get a job as a BCBA uh, working with one of these companies because that's never been sort of my specialization area. Mm -hmm. Like I, until that point had always worked with adults uh, and also was like branching off into a lot more niche things like gender and sexual behavior and things like that, which um, I did not necessarily take it upon myself to start some sort of like uh, 
specialized clinic or like working like I worked not in the capacity as a BCBA, but I definitely just used behavioral analysis and all of the things that I did. Uh, so working with organizations for like trans people's advocacy and things like that. So uh, working in media companies and like uh, training people on training writers on how to write more inclusively mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. So it's it's been wild in terms of the different places I've done things and mostly, mostly non-traditional, but yeah, that's kind of, I love that. I love, I love the non-traditional stuff. I love the novel (laughs) sort of application stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Yeah. I think that's cool. Well, we might might get to it later, but like, I mean, how, how, for example, with the media example, like Mm -hmm. how are you getting these gigs? I needed to make rent. No, but no, but, um, but how are you? How are, how are you suddenly training media folks I, on how to write inclusively? Uh, not a not as a behavior analyst. Mm. As I got a job as an editor, so mm. I was working as an editor for a content uh, production company got for it. like three years. So that was my day job, and I got a lot of like um, mentorship. And I was I've been mentored in an ongoing capacity by a bunch of people Mm. since I started doing, since I started in grad school. So, um, I would just like talk to them about some things that I wanted to implement and like taught, like did some trainings on like, here's why it's important that you use gender neutral pronouns, or here's why it's important that you don't say certain stereotypical things Mm. that might be Mm. harmful and like things like that. So would, so started implementing a bunch of those things. Um, and taking data on it. Cool, so. cool, cool. No, I, I, lo- I, I love when folks are sort of putting on their, their you know, sort of BCBA, well, ABA kind of hat, but in other, mm-hmm. other sectors. Because I think, you know, I think that's, that's probably the only way we're truly going to be able to disseminate our field, you know, outside of yeah. our own field is if we actually start working in other fields and show them what 100%. this stuff does, you know. You know, just pre- Absolutely. preaching we can save the world and... All that, whatever. We can't save anybody. We need to stop. We need to stop. We need to stop with that. I know. I know that we've had some lofty aspirations, but like, we've got a lot of work to do in house mm-hmm. before we get in the business of saving anyone. Um, I think. Which, we, I why think, should we be in that business at all? For sure. But, I think what we. Well, not this we can do. I think what we do do a lot of is we. We write papers that theorize how we could save the world you know Mm -hmm. if only everybody you know you know used rft for you know to change all their biases you know Mm -hmm. you know the whole world would be walled in two you know or whatever you know um and uh, and i think we have a lot of sort of you know uh, sort of ideas maybe but um, Mm -hmm. i don't know that you know yeah, I don't know if that's that's the route to go or not, but anyway. I yeah. And also like I think the thing for us to remember as a field is that we are very young. Mm-hmm. We're very, very young as a field yeah. compared to, I don't know, take clinical psychology, take yeah. counseling, take special ed, take like literally any other Everything, field that yeah. exists. We are very, very young. So it's going to take a minute yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're going to stumble a lot along the way yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think 
one of the things that we often forget. And this has certainly also been for me. I have to remind myself that we are young and like, yes, we're only, sometimes it's frustrating to be like, well, why aren't we talking about this yet? And that's an understandable and valid frustration for people that have historically been oppressed and marginalized and minoritized uh, to experience. So I don't want to invalidate that. And also, um, I think like, the, if if like in order to have hope and get out of bed in the morning and uh, know that change is a possibility still, I think we just got to keep chipping away at the thing if we choose to and everybody gets to make that choice. Totally. So I, I think I, I first kind of found you in uh, in. Uh, in more in more of this, the the sexual ABA kind of circles um, mm-hmm. in the, the that uh, ABAI um, specialist group um, mm-hmm. and some of the work you've been doing in there um, mm-hmm. and uh, what's so what got you going that direction and what and 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 what got you speaking sort of a lot on sort of gender specifically. Mm-hmm. So graduate school, really, the people that I was working with, mm-hmm. um, th- like Dr. August Stockwell was mm-hmm. um, faculty at the time that I was at TCS, and they were, uh, you know, sort of the stepping stone for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Warner Leland, who I also went to school with. Wow, um, mm-hmm. And so we we all started talking and working together, and that's kind of how it's been. Mm-hmm. Uh the 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 common theme here is I accidentally stumble into things and then decide that I want to be there. That is the broad narrative of every choice and every... If you see me in anything, it's because I walked into a room one day and an interesting conversation was happening and my ADHD brain was like, ooh, shiny, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> that is the running theme. So <laughs> take everything that I say with a grain of salt. Uh, but that's kind of where it started. It started with that. And also when I was working in a more like traditional, I mean, it was still not, it was still a super non-traditional ABA experience. Working with adults is really like, it gets your, it forces you to get creative with what you can do. Um, but a lot of my time was spent in advocating for clients not just with their guardians or families, but also with staff. Um, because there's generally a lot of infantilizing of adults with disabilities, um, uh, disabled adults and things like that. So a lot of my time was just spent with, they can masturbate, they can go on dates, they can have sex. All these things are okay because they are consenting adults. And the things that, like all all of the pushback and things that folks were worrying about, uh, we... I would approach with yes and with consent training and like informed decision-making training and all of those things. Like let's teach those skills. Let's not say in order to keep them safe, we have to limit their repertoires or limit their accessibility to all these things that adults get to do. Otherwise um, let's instead build skills around like, decision-making around safety, around consent, around like, do you know when something is happening that you are not comfortable with and how do you navigate that? And who do you seek support from if you need support? Um, 
and things like that, which like all sounds very fantastic, but um, it's really hard. <laughs> uh, it, it's a lot of conversations and it's a lot of perspective taking exercises. Yep. That's it to get like inch by inch movement or flexibility around like what people think uh, folks should be quote unquote allowed to do or not. Um, which is such a nonsense idea in the first place, but you know, that's kind of where we are. We still struggle with that routinely. Um, that's a large part of what people seek resources and consultation for. Even now it's like, I fully value and believe this for a person, but how do I get this parent of a six-year-old who, you know, is super religious or has some very strict rules around like sexual behavior, solo sex, whatever. How do I get this foster parent of this teen to, um, instead of trying to keep them in the house and like increasing the, uh, likelihood of them eloping a whole bunch instead, how can I teach them some, uh, how to consent to things and how to approach or negotiate um, uh, sexual interactions and how to have safe sex and how to protect myself from STDs and how do I not get pregnant and all of those things. So it's like, it's a lot of like, it, a lot of the consultation revolves around uh, resourcing people with clinical interviewing skills and perspective taking skills. It's a lot of like, um, Okay, so you clearly see these are your values and you see that there's a gap between what the parents are, uh, between what you value and what the parents are saying they want from you. And how do you bridge that gap slowly over time uh, while always centering the client and the client's needs? Like when when do you make decisions about advocacy versus like slow uh, buy in? Uh, when do you step in and be like, nope, this is a safety issue. You can't do it. And like, it feels super mm. uncomfortable and icky, but it's the right ethical decision in that moment and a lot of those things. So it's a lot of talking as you can tell. That, no, that's great. So yeah, you've touched on a lot of things that resonate for me. I also kind of come from mostly working with adults background worked in group homes for a lot of years, uh, mm -hmm. uh, more so with sort of younger kind of 20, 30, 40 somethings mm -hmm. adults, um, who are all, you know, from the perspective of these agencies, asexual. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, not only, you know, sure. Some of them do masturbate and, and go into, you know, the phrase that I always hear is private time. Um, um, it's time for private time, you know, it's almost, it's scheduled, yep. scheduled activity, those sorts of things. Um, and they do that Indeed. and they do that, but at the same time, you know, these folks don't make the connection that maybe they want to do more than masturbate in their room for 20 hours a day. Um, and, 100%. and, uh, you know, and, but they think it's a win that they're doing in their room versus, you know, in the living room or whatever. And, and sometimes, and sometimes that's the starting point, right? Like yeah. sometimes it totally is a lot of times it is like training people to discriminate between private spaces and public spaces and starting from there. And it's also like, how do you shift from tackling a problem to then once the problem is tackled. So once you made the discrimination between those two things, right? And mm -hmm. now they're successfully never masturbating in the living room and only masturbating in their bedrooms. Yeah. Um, 
how do you then transition to skill building? Like, how do you skill build? Find out whether, first find out whether this is something they want. Um, then if they want it, how do you make it happen? How do you make it happen in a way that they're able to discriminate safety versus not safe? Uh, the internet is accessible to everybody. And all of this gets also super tricky because of all of the legal ramifications. Like you can, um, you're never going to uh, conduct, like it's really tricky to conduct direct interventions, right? Like it's illegal to, um, and oftentimes folks, even with the best intentions are not aware of what is legal or not mm -hmm. within their scope. So they get caught up in the, which is which is not a bad thing. It's just that like part of scope of competence is also being aware of like, are you aware of all of the, um, you know, restrictions and privacy issues and legal ramifications of like intervening on the specific thing? Mm -hmm. For example, Dr. Shane Spiker, who's uh, in Florida and does a lot of this work, works uh, with a bunch of people who are on the sex offenders registry. Mm. Um, and how do you sort of navigate that? It gets like, it's very sensitive and it's very tricky and very nuanced and requires folks to build a scope of competence in a lot of specific ways that they may not have accounted for. So it's not just enough that people... Values are a great starting point. It's important that behavior analysts value that their clients are able to access basic human rights and dignity that everyone else does. Mm -hmm. And how do you go about that in a way that is... If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is gender. From a harm reduction perspective and also harm reduction for them, for others, for all of those things. And like, um, how do you navigate when a client is behaving inappropriately towards you while you're trying to work with them and or trans friends happens a lot, especially if you're one of the few people that gives them any sort of like affirmation, validation and dignity. Mm -hmm. This would happen to literally anyone. It has nothing to do with the disability so much nope. as if a person is only if a person has only one source of any sort of positive contact and affirmation. Of course, that's the thing that's most reinforcing and matching law tells us that we are going to allocate responding towards that source of reinforcement, right? More than any others. Um, so how do you navigate that? Like, how do you, how do you set boundaries for yourself and also continue to do this thing that you value? Does it require you to be in a particularly unsafe context? No. Uh, sometimes. And then how do you decide when to step in and out. So like scope of competence building in this area is such a huge, like it's so huge and complex and nuanced and requires so it requires people to think about so many things 
with every decision they're making in terms of intervening and treatment and things like that. So uh, Barbara Gross does a lot of great work on like scope of competence and like telling people like, yes, the ethics code. And also along with the ethics code, there's all these other codes and uh, rules that you need to be privy to and fluent in in order to be able to do this work. And of course, things like that differ from state to state, country to country, like, um, and they matter. Like, you can't just say that it doesn't matter because this is the right thing to do. How do you navigate those things is really important. So it gets tricky. Well, and you can see right now from everything you've just said why no one even wants to even go there. And why it's a lot easier yeah. to leave Billy in his room to masturbate for 20 hours because... 100%. You know, he's, he's, he's getting that, you know, relationships? Yeah. No. Dating? No. Um, yeah. You know, um, um, you know, all those sorts of things. And, 100%. And, and we have so many, so many folks in care that are, you know, being severely restricted from yeah. accessing and this any is- of that stuff. And this is without navigating gender things, queer queerness, oh, yeah. uh, you know, sexuality as a spectrum. How do you how do you make asexuality a valid? How do you how do you validate or recognize when someone's identity falls in the a spectrum versus or aromantic spectrum versus your supposition that? They're simply asexual as a function of their disability. Because um, ace disabled people exist, aromantic disabled people exist, as do polyamorous disabled people, polyamorous sexual uh, people, um, disabled people, bisexual disabled people, pansexual disabled people. Like, you know, like it's mm-hmm. across the board. So, like, how do you navigate that? Make and make decisions on what you want to do or say, or how do you give that information? How do you build that repertoire? How do you present all of these alternatives and make sure that what you're presenting is being comprehended and understood um, and that they're making genuine choices for themselves? Like, how do you, how do you, how can you confidently say that anybody is making a genuine choice is, you know, like this shit keeps you, uh, is going to keep you up at night. So sometimes, yes, it feels a lot easier to just be like, nope, not going to touch it with a 10 foot pole. This is just how it is. Uh, it's just safer or easier this way. And I understand the temptation for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, and, and, the, and the fact that these folks live under such, restricted lives 100 across all domains you know mm-hmm. uh, you know often sexuality is not even the first one we're looking at you know i mean we, you know no. just a right to sort of you know choose what you want for dinner is is is, 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 is isn't there for so many people and so you know and, and i think and i don't know but i i feel like you know the the folks that are running these programs, I know, because just just from my perspective, as a group was a group of manager for five years, I didn't have any expertise in any of this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I I went with status quo. I was like, yeah, nobody. This is the way their lives are going to be forever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because no one. And I have, don't. And I think it's an unfair expectation for anybody to be like, you need to be competent in all of these things. That's why. 
community building and sort of comprehensive care is important because nobody can know everything and nobody should have to tackle everything. It's not enough. I love the science of behavior and it's not enough to only have a behavior analyst in the room. It just isn't. You need somebody with that's trained in clinical interviewing skills, which means you need a clinical psychologist. You need somebody that spent all of their life and research on mental health stuff. And that may not be your domain. Um, you need somebody that's comfortable with like doing harm reduction and restorative justice work sometimes. How do you navigate when people do harmful actions or engage in behaviors that are harmful towards other people? How can you do it in how can you intervene in ways that don't isolate them from the community that they still see value in and get valuable interactions from uh, without, you know, invalidating victims of, you know, their actions or like, how do you, um, yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you restore essentially the context? Uh, you do need a bunch of people always working on these things. It is nearly impossible for anyone. And it is such an unfair expectation for any one person to be expected to know all these things and hold all these perspectives and have to make so many tough decisions and have tough conversations. So comprehensive care cannot be individualistic at all. Well, in our neck of the woods, I mean, and probably in a lot of next, uh, you know, there's, there's also no funding for any of that there isn't funding there aren't people how many behavior analysts do we know that are like the only behavior analyst in a 50 mile radius and mm-hmm. like what do you do with that yeah. let alone it's... one that maybe specializes in a certain area you know i mean exactly and if they're specialized in one area then there's deficits in other areas yeah. like you're always going to get a client for which you're you have to go seek supervision mm-hmm. you know get trained get consultation and then like how do you afford that how do you adequately compensate all these people that are doing this labor often marginalized minoritized people whose labor is taken for free yep. uh so how do you compensate that with your limited resources especially when there's no funding like it boils down to we live in a capitalist shit show and it's really hard to do any good despite your best intentions because the practicalities don't pan out the way we want it to. Oh Oh God, this is going to be so depressing. This is basically like, it's all fucked and everyone is, um, everyone's just struggling and probably going to continue struggling. Yeah. Sorry, y'all. Yeah. No, I, I mean, Yes, yes and no, because I think it goes back to, I mean, at least, first off, we're we're talking about this all from behavior analyst perspective, right? And like, mm-hmm. as, as you said at the beginning of the talk, you know, we're, we're a very young field, we're, we're, we're just kind of getting into some of this stuff. But some of these other fields have been doing this stuff for a long, long time and know how to have these conversations. Um, 100%. You know, and so I think, I think, I think that work is being done, um, we're just sort of new to the ball game and, uh, and realizing that, you know, we've got to, you know, as you said, we, 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 we have to have that sort of multidisciplinary mm-hmm. transdisciplinary kind of collaborative, collaborative approach. And, 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 and our field is not, our field is not doing us any favors by like continuing to silo us further in this place that has funding. Like we can talk, good talk about how the science of behavior applies universally, mm-hmm. 
Except that when you're introducing standards of, well, now you only have to, you can only sit for the exam if you get a master's in behavior analysis and nothing else, mm -hmm. which means automatically starting 2032, all of the like existing special ed uh, related programs, teacher training, whatever, all of those will get like defunct because yeah. they will no longer be eligible. And this is without us having done adequate collaborations with social work, with community psychology, with clinical psychology. Like we're only just doing some of that and not even all of it. And we're mm -hmm. continuing like our field is making decisions around siloing us further, uh, which is not which is not I don't know. It's not going to play out well both from a PR perspective, but also like fuck the PR perspective. It's just not going to play well as science. Like science is inductive. It's not about like getting super individualistic and like more, more and more narrow and rigid. It's like, it's never going to be successful that way. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think the other thing is, is, you know, we keep talking about how our science is, is universal, but there's quite a few sciences out there that are quite universal, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, and, the, and and there's quite a few folks out there that are like, yeah, we could do that too, boys, you know, or boys and girls or and yeah. folks and, and people and, and, um, and, you know, so I think, I think, you know, I was thinking. And no reason I, not to. I was, uh, I was, uh, I haven't been a member of ABAI for, I can't remember, for years. Um, I think you're okay. Uh, but I did join this year, most, mm -hmm. mostly because I, I want to finally go to a conference and and just meet more podcast guests. That's really the only reason. Um, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and find some more folks to talk to. Um, and, and absolutely, and, and getting to the conferences is 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 a lot cheaper if you get a membership. Um, but yep. the, the process of getting a membership is so arduous and so systemically so flawed i mean there's so much shit paperwork the, 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 the bureaucracies the, and the, the stuff that i had to go through so i had to you know i had to sort of so i had to submit my thesis and my abstract and description of all that i had to find a transcript which i had to go buy because i didn't have one I had to submit yep. that i had to describe what i did for a year in terms of supervised research activities so i need all this stuff in place which let's let's face it most behavior analysts don't have all that stuff, um, and yet, and yet, um, and so it's it's it, it's a big wall to become a voting member in the ABA in ABAI make change. Like I was 100%. this close to becoming an affiliate, but I was like, no, I want to vote no for some stuff. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna put I'm gonna type all this stuff out, but it's uh, you know we 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 talk a lot about sort of the systemic blocks for you know uh, for, you know minorities and other folks getting into this field. There, there's a big one yeah. right there. You can't even you can't even sort of vote in your own international association unless you yep. unless you've had enough privilege to access all of these things in this list Correct. which most people have not had the the, the privilege to access um Correct. and um you know, I don't even know if I filled it out right. Uh, like in the end, I still might not get through. I don't remember it being that hard the last time I applied, like nine years ago. But I don't know if they just made it even more difficult. But you know, there's just it's just it's just uh, systems issue after systems issue. Mm -hmm. I, I am looking at the time on my recording, and I do want to jump into the kind of main topic here. I brought you on because I wanted to talk gender stuff because I've never had a gender conversation sure. with anybody. Um, I wouldn't say Let's not anybody. It. I've had, had, well, I, know, I had one with you, you prior kind of planning for this and then I've had a couple of them with family but they've been very light and a little bit of work but you know, I, I really don't know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about at all. 
or maybe I know a little bit, but anyway, um, I, uh, but, but, you know, I, I've had a lot of really good conversations about neurodiversity. I've had a lot of really good conversations about racism and ableism and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and many of the other isms in our field. But, yeah. uh, but this gender thing, um, um, uh, is another piece that's huge, um, and has so mm-hmm. many applications across so many areas. Um, and yet it seems like it's, I know it isn't. I know. I, I know. Gender diversity has been a, a thing in existence for you know mm-hmm. for probably hundreds, maybe thousands of years on some level. Yeah. Um, um, but it seems like you know, and this could be, be my narrow ADHD, non-medicated perspective. I'm not medicated, and I can focus on more things now. That um, it's 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 been a relatively new thing in in sort of media maybe over the last 20 years or something it's you know? definitely more part of the zeitgeist now yeah. uh conversation or more mainstream now than it has been for a long time yeah yes. and so i think because of that i think there's some folks that are that think you know this is just a concept that sort of gen zers came up with or whatever you know yeah. another way to rebel against their parents or whatever you know um, which i mean i fully support it <laughs> <laughs> um and and i think you know on some level that some of that might be true i mean certainly i think these younger generations are are speaking up a lot more about this stuff and mm-hmm. um, and, and, and getting that information out but the, mm-hmm. the idea that it's sort of a phase or whatever, you know, yeah. um, you know, is, 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 I think is, 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 is a thing for, 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 yeah. for, for some folks. So maybe just get down to some, some, some basics first. Uh, sure. You know? So I, I think, and, and I'm going to, I want to come at this from a perspective of someone who, not my own perspective, but someone who just doesn't know anything about this and someone who thinks sex mm-hmm. and gender are the exact same thing. Um, sure. Um, and, uh, and so, so, what's the difference? Got it. Okay. So, sex is to do with, or sexual identity is to do with how you are or not attracted to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that's whose body parts do you want to mush your body parts with or not at all or in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe some, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Right? Interactions. Gender is identity of, like, how do you feel? How do you want to present to the world? What uh, makes, like, what makes up your aesthetic? What makes up your, like, this is how I relate to the world as a person. Um, And this is how I wish to be perceived in the world as a person. All of those things would fall in the gender camp uh less to do with attraction and um well like it overlaps to some degree with attraction depending on where you land uh but broadly you can think of it as a spectrum uh of you know um masculine and feminine being the broader categories uh and everything in between that so uh instead of um instead of considering them as a binary of two options uh based on your genetics or you know your chromosome uh permutation combination or the 
you know, you were born and a doctor looked at your presenting body parts mm -hmm. and made a choice for you. Um, all of those things versus like, how do you identify? Mm -hmm. What do you feel most comfortable with? What matters to you? What makes you feel validated in your body and in your um, mind? I know that wasn't very behavior analytic, but in your mind, uh, how, what does it make you feel? those things would be in the gender camp. So broadly think of it as a spectrum. Right. Uh, I feel like construct is probably the next step. So to me, it's like, before we, I'm before we the, go to construct, it's all made up. Before but, we go to construct. Yeah, but before we go to construct spectrum, spectrum of how people identify, what pronouns they choose, how do they dress? What do they, um, what type of words do they prefer being described as? Uh, do they prefer like, uh, adjectives that are more masculine than feminine or what you would typically use for masculine presenting folks versus feminine presenting folks. Uh, do they prefer more neutral descriptors of themselves sure. of those things? So, I mean, I think, mm -hmm. I think one conversation that comes up for a lot of folks when they're trying to sort of navigate this and support, some, mm -hmm. support someone who's, you know, you know, just maybe having some struggles to sort of figure out where they're at um, is mm -hmm. this, this other sort of argument and, 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 and that, that I, I hear a lot is biolog the biological sex concept. Um, yeah. and that that's, you know, and, and some of that will then connect to religion in some way, you know, yeah. Um, God bent for there to be males and females, mm -hmm. Adam and Eve and sure. so on and so forth. Um, sure, yeah. um are, like what, what is, is biological sex, just another construct or is is the, like how does that sort of connect like because that, this is the argument that's that folks are going to come up against when they're sort of For sure. trying to explain that you know um you know well my my son's a boy and my daughter's a girl and and mm -hmm. and and, uh, and and that's that you know because that's the way yeah. that's the, what the doctor said and that's the way it is and he's got a he's got sure. a penis and he she doesn't and so on and so forth um yeah um Yeah, what what do you do with that? Uh <laughs> so bunch of different things, right? One biological sex is also not a binary actually. Mm. Uh if you break it down to biologists can obviously speak better to this than I ever sure. will, but on the most basic level, we don't only have two types of sex chromosome permutations. It's not only XX and XY. A bunch of other uh, mutations, for lack of a better word, do exist, have always existed, mm. because when you when you have so many uh, people like just on a like mathematical level, you're always going to have you're always going to have more than two just based on yeah. the number of people that like procreate, right? Uh, so one, biological sex is not really binary either. You do have other, like, intersex folks, for example. Uh, you do just have other biological permutations, combinations that would influence uh, gender presentation or whatever, right? That's on one level. But usually I approach these things with, like, why, tell me what makes you afraid of your because that's what a lot of it boils down to is relating to the world a specific way and living your life with this specific understanding of truth of a certain concept 
and then that being questioned mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's that's scary because yeah. if this is not consistent then what else isn't consistent and if nothing is consistent then what is consistency even um and the answer to all of that is consistency is nonsense uh but also i'm a person with adhd so i will always say consistency is nonsense although sometimes it works in my favor um <laughs> but essentially essentially i approach these conversations with well now i won't say that i've always taken this sort of high roady approach it's been a lot of like how dare you and fuck you and you're a horrible person and like get away from me you're transphobe and uh, you know um all of those things aside it's the the i try to start out now with what i can't believe i'm saying this but like how does that make you feel um <laughs> <laughs> uh, because to me that's what that seems to boil down to um typically at least so it starts out with okay and then people come up with like answers to that right it's like this is how it's always been or you know like it's simple or it doesn't have to be so complicated or um this is my son i've raised my son now you're telling me this is my daughter and i'm just supposed to like change my mind mm-hmm. yeah it's actually really easy and it doesn't change anything the person still the same um but it's scary <clears throat> right because there's an assumption that everything is different that um the person that you know is not somebody you know at all uh what does that mean especially when it's somebody you birthed and raised mm-hmm. and always perceived as a particular something um what will people say is a big one always yep. that's part of it and of course things like religion and like uh cultural backgrounds and things like that those answers start popping up and it's like well in my religion this is what it says or and like you know do they want to go to hell and i don't want my kid to go to hell mm. so like how do i it's the same response restriction stuff that we were talking about earlier like how do i just prevent that like horrible consequence that i believe would occur if they made this quote unquote decision about themselves um uh, what if they change their mind later and it's like okay and mm-hmm. and that's terrifying cuz it's all uncertain and then when you start having to operate from a i can't know any of this for sure or anything for sure then what can you know for sure and that's horrifyingly scary like how do you get out of bed with that much uncertainty uh and lack of like um you know whatever it's it's terrifying so it usually tackling that is where the second secret word is intersex i n t e r s e x is what i find more useful than having to challenge tackling that is the like root to challenging assumptions because you want to build flexibility around the idea it's not just about so some things you certainly want to do more immediately right like in terms of a harm reduction and affirmation perspective uh you want to ensure the safety of the person that you're advocating for and things like that but more broadly how do you build that flexibility around the people that are resisting this idea um by tackling some of those like what does that mean for you mm-hmm. like why does it cuz nobody's telling you to do anything other than like honor this person's pronouns or name or like affirm their identity when they come and tell you that this is their identity be validating like those are 
none of those require you to do anything. And the other fear that comes is if, especially if you are a person that has never questioned this about themselves, then watching other people question it can be terrifying because then it's like uncertainty about yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Because of the ways in which we so linearly talk about gender and gender diversity, even we talk about transgenders, people as like uh, people who live, you know, who are making choices to um, uh, live as they live authentically based on like, or who have been assigned something that's not uh, assigned based on biological features that are not like, you know, their identity features and things like that. But it's always talked about, even in those contexts, even when we talk about sort of um, non-cisgender people. So people who don't, um, so cisgender people are people who were, you know, who are not transgender. So people who um, use the pronouns and gender identity that, you know, they, from the get-go. So what they were born with is is what's consistent for them. Mm. And it's talked about in a bunch of different ways. It's terrifying if you've never questioned it to be like, what could this mean for me then? Because the truth criterion again comes into play, right? Like if this is not true for them and it's not true universally, what about me? And does this mean I have to question and you don't have to do anything ever? And that's the great part. But it's the, it's again, the fear of knowing. It's the fear of like, what if I do discover something about myself that's like fundamentally, that is fundamental, that is different from what I have fundamentally always um, identified as, or like fundamentally always seen myself related to the world as, uh, and what are the things that come with it? Um, which is why people like point to detransitioning, for example, and or like, oh, look, that means they changed their mind. And what if, like, my kid undergoes all of these, like, seemingly permanent changes and they realize that they're unhappy and what does that mean? Uh, And suffering and things like that. And how do they, you know, the world is infinitely harder on people who are different and minoritized. And how do you, you don't want that for your kid. So the fear comes from a lot of different places that are often not, that are often not as simple as I don't like this or like this is wrong. Like that fundamental fear or challenge of the way they relate to the world is terrifying. Um, So my approach lately has been less antagonistic to the best of my ability (laughs) and more and more, okay, why does it bother you so much? Like, why does it bother you if somebody you don't know identify? Like, what what about this parasocial relationship is terrifying you right yeah. now? Uh, and trying to get to the root of that, which has always been my like the way I would like to see. Like, even when I when I talk to parents now who are you know parent newer parents who are more like, yeah, I'm totally cool if my kid's gay, or I'm totally cool if my kid's. Um, trans or whatever i'm like yes great and 
you are still looking at it as a fundamental point of shift that is unidirectional, mm. um, that is a one time only, right. that is a uh, sort of like, okay, now you've landed and that's where you're going to stay. Instead, if we could shift towards a more play with these things, find out what feels good for you, find out if that thing changes for you. How many, this is a toxic, speaking of toxic masculinity, uh, how many cis men would be, would feel more validated and affirmed um, if they could indulge freely and without judgment, not only judgment from themselves, internalized bullshit, uh, but judgment from others about like things that they may enjoy that may not line up with their perceptions or other people's perceptions of what cis people should enjoy. Which is why I'm like, when we talk about a world in which gender doesn't matter, that doesn't mean that, that means that that doesn't mean that gender doesn't matter so much as nobody's penalized for gendering themselves a specific way. It just simply means that people get to pick what is appetitive and reinforcing for them. And those reinforcing, the reinforcing value of those things can change over time. And that's fine. It's fine if somebody transitions now and then decides that it's not working out for a bunch of reasons. And right now, primarily, if you talk to people that transition, it's fundamentally a function of like, the world is fucking infinitely hard on trans people and I can't continue to survive this way. Yeah. So living uncomfortably or living in like internal pain or private pain seems like a better option than attempting to live in a way that where this thing gets affirmed, but the price for that affirmation is that. Right. Um, and again, like allocating, responding looks widely different for a bunch of different people, especially when you're isolated, when you don't have community, when you don't like, you know, get to find your people and things like that. So um, this went a lot of different places. I'm sorry. You did ask for can, like a more It can only but... go a lot of different places. I think that's the point, that is correct. The point here. <laughs> Um, so much good stuff there. Um, so much unfortunate stuff. Feel there. free to interrupt me. No, Feel free yeah, to interrupt I, no, me I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, I also have a bit of an ADHD brain, but, um, sometimes it's nice when someone, you know, keeps me focused and, 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 and forces me to, to listen for longer than a minute. Um, it's good, it's good, <laughs> it's good practice for my, my, uh, my active listening skills, which are relatively poor, I think. But um, I, I like a few things that you kind of talked about. There. I like everything, but there's some big points there. One is sort of instead of addressing, you know, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being A, B, or C, and instead of addressing mm -hmm. the fear piece, I think I think that's hugely important because I think you're right. I think in the end, it's not really it's not really whether you know, my, my holy book says this is wrong or whether, you know, uh, that, that, that bizarre overdressed, uh, you know, priest in the, in the, in the building says, says it's wrong or right. The problem is, is that I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to say it's wrong or right because of 
a million different things that could happen or or or, or, or won't happen depending on you know on, mm-hmm. on, that, on that society and that also goes mm-hmm. into <clears throat> i mean fierce seems to be the central piece in all of this i mean the idea that you know someone could transition and uh you know you know even even go you know to the the more seemingly permanent step of sort of, you know, medical changes and whatnot, um, uh, which aren't always permanent either. But anyway, um, um, mm-hmm. and, and and then feel awful. I think you're right. I think it, yeah. I think it's more likely that they're probably going to feel awful because of of the the way this world is all messed up, um, mm-hmm. and, and and won't accept this change. Then you you know you, you you may feel quite comfortable on the inside for a moment, but as soon as you have to interact with any human being anywhere, you're now oh, okay. This sucks. You know, I thought this was me. I think this is still me, but. This me isn't going to work here, um, and either I'm going this to... This me needs to make rent, and this me is currently yeah. not making rent, and yeah. that's a very yeah. real yeah. contingency. And this me had a job, but now this new me has lost their job, or or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or got kicked off the sports team, or, or whatever sort of, you know, sort of binary kind yeah. of, uh, of expectations that are in place in every sort of, you know, socio-economical and, setting. Mm-hmm. And on another level... How many people have a repertoire that's flexible enough to explore some of these things? So if you are constantly in survival mode, which is true for a lot of people in the world, it can feel like a luxury to be able to even ponder these questions about yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to a certain degree, the world that we live in now, it can... And I know a lot of people, this this is probably going to upset some people because it's not, there's no privilege in like being a marginalized person for sure. And there's some degree of privilege because of the way the world is set up in having the flexibility to consider these things for mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. That being said, part of why my shift in perspective of that gender piece also happened was because a common theme that I was noticing was a lot of people that were exploring their gender are often doing it from a place of scarcity and aversiveness. It's a place of like, I feel terrible. I want to kill myself. I want to like, whatever I want, I can't exist like this. And therefore something's got to give. And What would it look like in a world where exploring those things or, you know, trying things on were available, not just from a source of because I'm suffering, but because it's a free option that's Mm -hmm. available to me. Um, So which is why I like to like talk to like even queer parents and things like that, like about like. Consider that you don't have to wait for your kid to come and say, I don't think I'm straight uh, because of I suffer in X, Y, and Z ways. Consider that they could always have these options uh, freely available mm-hmm. to them with no aversive consequences uh, and consider that it's all okay. Like this idea that cis people have it all figured out <laughs> is I think fundamentally untrue. And I think it's just a function of They've never had to question it from a space of suffering. Exactly. So if they're not questioning it from a space of suffering, then there was no need to question it at all. And that to me is fundamentally untrue. To me, it's like this exploration, experimentation should be freely available and not just have to come from a place of suffering. 
which then broadens our flexibility around like identities, pronouns, trying out all of these things, the ways you want to be addressed. Like it could just become norm to, it would be wonderful if it could just become norm for people to try on different things, yeah. find what works. Sometimes the thing that you, that works now, doesn't work 15 years from now and that's okay. There's been a- and it doesn't mean that either of those things are invalid. Like yeah. what you're experiencing now and what you're experiencing 15 years from now yeah. are both valid in the context that you're experiencing them. And that's all that is. Totally. I love it. It's interesting. It just it makes me think of a couple of sort of instances in pop culture where um, sort of gender fluidity, as it were, or some of these aspects um, were, were widely accepted and, and, and not mm-hmm. judged. And yet no one sort of made sort of the, the connection to stuff happening there to stuff happening now. I, I'm thinking of 80s metal bands, you know, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, you yeah. know um, and, and, uh, the, you know, skin tight leather, skin tight leather, like, lipstick, nail, nail polish, polish beautifully done hair, um, yeah. you know, the whole nine yards, um, um, mm-hmm. um, in terms of sort of expression and, um, and there was zero judgment. I mean, sure. There was a few folks that, you know, just, you know, made a comment here and there, but, sure. but there was no sort of assumption that these folks are of their sexual identity. And there was no function of, 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 that they were deviants. There was no, mm-hmm. you know, question. There was no, there was no discussion on whether, you know, you know, is, is, is Vince Neil gay or not, or is, you know, mm-hmm. is so-and-so what, you know, um, um, you know, whatever, whatever. It was just, uh, you know, these are musicians and, and they're, 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 they're and doing some their people thing. Were- Mm-hmm. And some people were pretty public about it. Yeah. Uh, David uh, David Bowie always has yeah. been. Prince always has been. Uh, Freddie Mercury totally. has always been. Like all of the heroes of the rock and roll world are, you know, 100% have always been. Oh. But, and again, like think of the, con- like when you think of Freddie Mercury, think of like the political context of the time. Like the AIDS crisis was very much real mm. and like, a lot of gender, like even today, gender identity and sexual orientation are so intertwined because sometimes they do overlap for a lot of people. Um, it's just not a universal truth criterion for either of those things, but because of the ways in which they overlap and because of like our understandings of them at different points in time, um, like it did, it became a political thing. Like his gender identity became a political thing. His sexual orientation became a political thing. Like Freddie Mercury being bi was like, people were like, you deserved it because you slept with men and like um, you committed sodomy or whatever, you know, whatever the narrative was. Like those things do play a role because of our understanding of and the ways in which we present this information. Like monkeypox, for example, to take a more contemporary example. Sure. Initially, the data that were coming out were presented as, oh, the occur- it's more prevalent with like gay people yep. or queer people and things like that. And we need to stop and question why those data are the data that they are, mm-hmm. which is like, this is the root of what we, when we talk about philosophic doubt and we say question everything, it's the critically analyze the information that you are getting from any medium. That doesn't mean that it's a Fox News conspiracy. I don't give a shit about like beating on Fox News. Um, but it's it's a function of like, even with your like trusted liberal outlets or whatever, uh, 
consider how that information is being presented to you and why. Uh, now we're getting data that that's actually not the case, but the first piece of information has already done a bunch of damage. Like we still live in a day and era where like COVID was happening and queer people couldn't donate blood yep. because that's still a thing. Yep. Um, in 2020, 2021, 2022. And that did like that, that was like that only shifted because like the majority of the population, like we were running out of resources. Mm -hmm. I was like, so now you're not worried about the contaminated yeah. blood. Yeah. Now yeah. it's totally no, it's okay cool. for yeah. the gay sex to happen. So long as you get the thing that you need to save the lives. Which, like, by all means, do the thing. Sure. And also, can we please, like, uh, have a little bit of shame for, like, what you put, like, queer people through in this process? Um, but, yeah, so, you know, like, even contemporarily, we're seeing how these things, like, science is not without bias. This idea that science is about objectivity is ludicrous. Because who does science? People do. People are biased. Yep. People are not infallible and therefore the data that are coming out are not either. Like always question what that means. What is the context in which that is being presented? Like, and again, like so many scientists and behavior analysts and like any, any scientific profession, they still commit those errors. They still like, if you consider science to be your God, you're still committing the same flaws that any person that belongs to a cult or a religious organization is yeah. like it is the same exact principle and the same exact ideology you've just decided that one is better than the other uh which is nonsense science is not god uh stop treating it like that and the same thing with behavior analysis right like all the saving the world bullshit it's like comes from a space of like our science is better than every other science ever in the world and it's like exactly how do you expect to get buy-in when you walk into a room with a god complex yeah. um and how are you any different from all of the people that you're critiquing constantly yeah. i just uh i'm releasing an episode today actually uh it's friday friday you doing a remote um uh, mm -hmm. an interview i did with uh rocco uh, Catrone. nice and on uh it started kind of on on his capability paper um, it was mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the main crux, but we, we were talking a lot about bias and scientific bias and, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, uh, there, there's, there's starting to be a move and I think Rocco is one of them. And there's been some other folks that are starting to do this towards, mm -hmm. towards the kind of community participatory research mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm, approach mm -hmm. where within our field, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. within our field and, 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 and within autism research, quite a bit more too um, mm -hmm. um uh and uh, and we talked about he, he he said the exact same phrase that you know every, every scientist is biased and so if the scientist is coming up with the research question the scientist is doing the recruiting the scientist is 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 analyzing the data and so on and so forth mm -hmm. um you're, mm -hmm. you're you're gonna have you're gonna have that bias all the way through and so you need to really be including you know whoever whoever this is for should be the one mm -hmm. asking the question and should be the one, yeah. you know, uh, involved in sort of sort of all those pieces. Mm -hmm. So I, I I like I like I like that more more of us are starting to clue into the fact that we have a whole mm -hmm. lot of bias in place yep. uh, when when we're doing Absolutely. these things. Yeah. How does this all kind of kind of 
fit. Not, not, that's not the right question. So I'm thinking about sort of DEI and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of move towards more sort of DEI efforts in, in organizations. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. um, George Floyd murder has really not only opened up the doors for, uh, you know, a much better understanding of racism and anti-racism mm-hmm. actions and whatnot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. also opened the doors to basically social justice in general um, and the different yeah. in different areas. And, uh, and so yeah. from a DEI perspective, um, you know, we're seeing companies mm-hmm. that are, you know, trying to do more, you know, cultural safety, cultural humidity training and that sort of thing. And, yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, um, and so one area that I think, you know, a lot of folks are also trying to do more training in is in, is in, uh, I don't even know what we call this area. So, so with racism and sexism and all those sorts of areas, and maybe they're all—it's all part of that. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure even sure what sort of the the category of learning that like maybe it's mm-hmm, sex, is mm-hmm, it sexuality, mm-hmm. is it identity, is it whatever you know? But uh, um, as far as sort of embedding the, this understanding that gender is just a construct and the idea of gender fluidity into sort of everything mm-hmm, we're doing mm-hmm. in our everyday lives. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I guess the question is, 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 is how to sort of, you know, I guess maybe since we're speaking mostly to behavior analysts, how do ABA agencies and mm-hmm. stuff, um, you know, go about, um, you know, sort of being inclusive to the construct of gender, both in staffing mm-hmm. and in, 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 in the folks they're working with. And I mean, a lot of it's the stuff you already said, but. You know, yeah. what's like what's the starting point? You know, because it seems to be mostly pronouns. You know, and and pronouns remind me of sort of you know I I, did, I started this thing off with the land acknowledgement and pronouns and land acknowledgement seem to be sort of the place where everyone stops for those issues. You know, okay, I put my yeah. I put my e, my he him down. I put my land acknowledgement at the bottom of my email. I'm an ally, uh-huh. um, and uh, yeah. and move on. Uh, where 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 and 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 it, and even I think even in my own company, this it, we we've kind of stopped at pronouns. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and don't really know where to go next. Yeah. So I think the reason that a, we start and stop at pronouns is because that's a tangible, discernible thing to intervene on, right? Like use the right pronouns for people. Correct. And it's, it's a good starting point. I don't think it, I don't think we should dis, I mean, I'm super jaded about it, but also I would not want to discount that effort broadly. And what it, it's complicated. It's, it's a complicated mess is mm-hmm. where I'll start with. I'll start with that. And I will say it involves a lot of the same things that we talk about in terms of cultural humility. It's a lot of like question everything, observe your interactions, Look at how you are allocating labor, right? Like, uh, so let's talk about the academic context because that's the one that I'm operating in right now and I'm most familiar with. Um, academic contexts typically have like certain requirements. You teach, you do research, you do mentorship, and you do service. Mm-hmm. Um, these are sort of the four main domains that most academics operate in. Look at the labor distribution and the criteria for career progress with those things, right? Uh, so it's presented as you have to do that your primary, um, roles are in teaching and, uh, research with some service and mentorship elements. However, 
all four of these things are evaluated when you consider promotion, when you consider tenure track, when you consider all of these upward mobility things in your career as an academic. Mm. And largely service and mentorship are a lot of emotional labor that's not particularly like your your salary is contingent on you doing teaching research mentorship and service but you won't get docked if you don't do it if you belong to a certain category mm-hmm. like your your salary will come into question if you don't fulfill your teaching and research requirements because they're more tangible and with the other two it's sort of like loosey goosey right mm-hmm. But if you look at the landscape of academia, who is doing that emotional labor primarily? Who gets, um, who is both expected to serve on these committees and then who does the bulk of the work within these committees? Mm -hmm. How many people get promoted when they fulfill basic service requirements that are white cis men um, versus um, like, if you look at the research, black women in particular uh, are most exploited when it comes to service and mentorship requirements because yes. of, with the rationale of, uh, oh, underrepresented students will feel more connected to you or will uh, will um, will really benefit from you providing that mentorship and service. Correct. And how are you compensating them? Because you are still the the contingencies around which they can make career progress are still the same. You're holding them to the same standards, but you're not evaluating them equally yep. and the labor distribution is not equal. So, and that plays out in like, that's just the, that's just an example from academia, but consider sort of those same um, dynamics in any sort of organization, right? Mm-hmm. Look at your, when people talk about their organizations being diverse, Look at who is in leadership and who has power, and then look at the makeup of the people who are doing labor in a more intensive way. So look at the Mm. uh, sort of demographic breakdown of your RBTs versus your uh, BCBAs and management. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, I worked in an organization in the south side of Chicago. Um, Management was all white. It's the south side of Chicago. <laughs> Management was all white. Mm. Uh, direct staff were mostly black women. All paid minimum wage, doing really intensive labor, yeah. right? With no room for or support systems in place for upward mobility unless they specifically took on those uh, additional jobs or like uh, individually pursued those tracks. And again, who has the resources to do that? Does everyone have the resources to do that? Are organizations setting up their employees with resources to make these changes career-wise? How are you supporting your staff who are, when they experience sort of uh, microaggressions and these harms within the context of their jobs from families or from their, you know, their colleagues, uh, how are you assessing the labor distributions in an ongoing manner? Do you have systems in place to address it when an issue occurs? Because half the time, the issue happens is that there's no systems in place, and then a problem happens, and then you're trying to put a Band-Aid on a problem. Uh, and we need to move away from this Band-Aid bullshit 
uh, to like actually having systems in place so that when issues occur, there's ways to resolve them in a meaningful way that centers the person that's being harmed. Um, so it is a lot of like systems building on a broader, which like is more complex to tackle. There's so many contingencies in place and it's not like organizations in our field are not cropping money. So money is always a factor in these things. Uh, but like um, when we think about like salary negotiations, right? Like how often are you more inclined to um, say yes to somebody negotiating a higher pay when they present a certain way uh, versus how often do you have the perspective of they should be grateful that they're getting a job from me because they wouldn't be hired from someone else because of X, Y, and Z factors. And why is that okay at all? Like that, that's not like if you were an organization with like good values and mission, then it shouldn't matter that they're not being hired by other people. But are you doing them like, are you exploiting someone that's already resource limited? Because if you don't say yes, nobody else is saying yes. So they'll take anything that you give them and you can exploit them that way. And that's mm -hmm. fucked. Uh, and it happens a lot. Um, ongoing assessment and training. Like, these are things that are not going to be fixed by a Band-Aid. These are things that are not going to be resolved by one DEI training for yep. the entire organization because they happen in layers. It's not just about building awareness of these certain things, but it's about on an ongoing assessment of those interplays, those dynamics, those power interactions that are happening on, especially when you have like a, a top-down approach of like organizational structure how are you navigating it in those things? So yes, it becomes more complicated when you consider them, but it also only becomes effective when you consider the complicated uh, ways in which these things interact. So um, always like, I'm like, the Band-Aid is not fixing anything. Your one DEI training that you paid for everyone to attend is not changing minds. Like you have to have ongoing perspective building, ongoing skill development. Because oftentimes it's not just a function of ignorance. It's a question of like, I'm aware of this, but I don't have any skills to navigate this. Or I'm unaware because I don't have the skills. It's not only a can-do, it's not only a want-to problem. Sometimes it's a know-how problem. Sometimes mostly it's a can-do problem. It's like, what the fuck can I do knowing the bullshit, mm -hmm. um, right? Which is what all the BCBs are coming for consultation for. It's like they know they, their values are in the right place. They know where the issue lands. It's like, what do I do to resolve the thing? So ongoing intervention is key. Like paying attention to this in an ongoing way hire people who are competent in doing this. Mm. Like, don't just do like a, there's this organization that offers asynchronous DEI training for six hours mm. and everybody in the organization has to complete it right. in order to keep their job. It's like, okay, and how are you assessing whether that training was effective? Um, we're behavior analysts. We're trained in all of these things. Uh, implement them for ourselves. Implement them for our organizations. Um, you're, you're, a lot of these things are going to look like conversations and perspective shift over time. They don't happen overnight. Um, and even if they did happen, you're still going to, you're going to be like, okay, you changed my mind. How do I, what does that look like in practice? How does that show up in when a parent is like, nope, my kid is a girl. My kid is a girl and only a girl, despite whatever they say. 
and that's just how you're going. You're not going to do anything else about it. Mm. How do you advocate for your client from a place of your values without alienating them from their primary support system? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, those things matter. Like you can't just be like, fuck it. If your parents are being assholes, run away from home. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and what? Mm-hmm. Like you'll use the right pronouns for them and they will die because they haven't eaten in 48 hours um, or didn't have a place to sleep. Uh, You know, so like these things, again, like it's the nuance and sensitivity and perspective shifting over time. And it's such intensive work. So by no means is it. It's not easy, but taking those steps is what's going to result in eventual systemic change or you know organizations need to have a cultural shift uh, and that cultural shift has to be ongoing that cultural shift has to have mechanisms for like um it's not enough if the person that like owns the organization or makes the most money is like yep these are the rules and you have to follow the rules Mm -hmm what does that do for a cultural change? Like they'll follow the rules for eight hours and then go off and do the thing because you've established it as a rule and you didn't take the time to like do some perspective training with them uh, or like broaden their skill set. Like how are you setting them up for success um, with all of these things? So it's complicated. Yeah. It's hard. Maybe, <laughs> it's maybe a, a, time consuming. A, another, no, that, that's... Uh, that's the answer I, I expected, and because there's, 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 there, you know, I think a lot of folks are looking for, you know, and I was one of these people certainly a couple of years ago, looking for quick fix action items. What do I do now? What do I do to change my behavior today? Mm-hmm. Give me a list of things I can do so I can be, you mm-hmm. know, better. There isn't or one. Whatever you know, um, and I've over the last few years, that's that perspective has changed broad a, a lot for me. You know, I know there's mm-hmm. no one thing. I know these are systemic issues and I know things are going to take a long time and we need to bring some folks in. Mm-hmm. I wonder now what, what, so I think, I think, you know, I think maybe a good way to go about this. Um, and at least and I hope this, that we're, we're doing the right sort of thing at, at our agency. So what mm-hmm. we've tried to do is, um, you know, first off we, you know, we started the committee and all that sort of thing like everybody mm-hmm, else did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we mm-hmm. realized pretty quickly in our committee that, well, actually not quickly, but it took us, it was about a year. Uh, we, we realized after about a year that we really had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we had no structure. We had no plan. We had no, um, you know, foundation. We, we were just sort of randomly selecting, you know, um, um, items that someone thought there mm-hmm. might be a problem with, which was good. I mean, there were some things, we, you know, we, we here and there we did. I mean, we had some, we had an autistic guy that was working for us for a while that, that mm-hmm. went through all of our behavior plans and our language and told us how icky everything was. And, you know, that was really helpful yeah. and got to make some changes yeah. there. But systemically, I mean, that there was no not, not a lot of change. And so I think you need to bring in, you know, folks that know what they're doing um, uh, in this area and kind of have, in, have yeah, and like <clears throat> one by one. Like again, I don't think again, like resources are always limited, so it's like understandable that you can make these changes one at a time mm-hmm. or make these changes more slowly. But I think there's value in taking the time to do it. I think there's value. I think that's the only way to do it. You're not going to. There's a reason people don't get fixed in six sessions of therapy, yeah. like. 
you fix one problem and then you're going into another problem with the same exact framework that got you in problem one in the first place. The thing that's going to make the change useful is changing the framework, yeah. not change, not solving that first problem. And sometimes solving the first problem is the first step. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not it's not unnecessary. So you can be like, yeah, no, we have to do this comprehensively. So we're going to take three years to do it. And then that in the meantime, it's going to be three years of shittiness. And that's just how it's going to be. No, mm -hmm. it's a combination of putting things in place for immediate change and simultaneously building systems so that you are not repeating these problems in the future. Mm -hmm. So these things have to happen in tandem. You don't want to have people suffering in the meantime. So you want to offer relief in the immediate moment. Mm -hmm. And you want to generate repertoires that in the future offer more flexibility and more access to appetitives and more access to reinforcement and you know, uh, ease suffering in the long term. Um, so those things have to happen in tandem always, always, always mm -hmm. for anything, take any problem that you want to tackle. You've got a, at minimum two prong approach. Yeah. So there are, well, I think another thing that, that, you know, uh, the, the sort of change in, in the world and, and move towards mm -hmm. the kind of positive social justice thing has done is it's brought out a lot more folks who are consulting in these areas there are a lot of mm -hmm. sort of dei um and, and area specific so you know i know we have yeah and and, and they're and they're you know i think in, in a lot of ways they're probably love loving this change i mean for a bunch of different reasons but they're all working a lot like they're all i think, yeah. I think in the past maybe they weren't getting as much work and now they're overworked you know we've got one in that is correct we're, 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 there's wait lists you know now there, there's not enough of them yeah. out there um, um, and, and they're starting to tackle, you know, initially it was sort of just the DEI consultant, but now you're getting consultants sort of in, in sort of specific areas now, which I think is great. Um, and I know we, mm -hmm. we started working with, um, um, uh, an indigenous, uh, consultant, uh, last year and, and we've kind of got an ongoing relationship with him and his company now to kind of keep doing that nice. work. And now, and now we're looking yeah. for sort of, you know, folks to kind of help in some of those other areas, but mm -hmm there are so many to choose from. Um, and, and, there are, and, and, and there's not enough resources to train more people to do it. Yeah. Like there's a reason that I've been doing this, for example, for what, six years, seven years. Mm. And I still like recommend or refer the same five, six, seven people yeah. because it's really hard to get other people to come and do this work because it's so hard. Yeah. It's hard work to do. Yeah. So of course people aren't picking it. And then there's like the resources required to train means it takes away from resources to offer for a consultation because people only have that much capacity as humans in the world. Um, so, you know, it's going to be slow. It's going to be messy. But again, I don't think there's any sort of linear way to approach any of these things. I think these things have to happen in tandem. They have to happen on their own timelines. Uh, but like operating merely from a sense of urgency is not going to lead to any meaningful outcomes like we were all fired up about jrc six months ago it's september now yeah. i know that abai um abai uh, submissions will be closed by october because yeah. it usually is what are people doing now ahead of that mm -hmm. are we still going to see the same number of people go to abai next year and then we're going to talk about this again in april mm -hmm. like what's happening um 
you know, so like once that sense of urgency has passed, because there's always going to be something that replaces it. That's kind of the world that we live in now in terms of like you're going to be constant. Like people are constantly inundated and overstimulated by the amount of shit that's happening in the world because the world simultaneously is bigger and smaller. Mm -hmm. um, so like one recognizing that everybody is not going to fix everything and it's not everybody's job to fix everything. Picking the things that you value and operating from them and operating on those things and being like, these are the places in which I can do good or these are the places in which I can offer service in a way that's meaningful instead of, which is so antithetical to like neurodivergent people, <laughs> I think, and their various special interests. But, um, but like, you know, resources are limited. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you effectively use those resources? That's important. So. And and not everybody is operating from the same resource capacity. So I think taking taking it one step at a time, but also taking it, doing establishing it in a way that's both offering immediate relief and ongoing support is important. Yeah. Cool. Um, random question here. Um, mm -hmm. Going back to pronouns for a second. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Like, I, like, like yeah. for a while, you know, well, for a while, for, for, not for a while, for me, for, for a while, my perspective was he, him, she, her, and they, um, you know, uh -huh. and, and that was it. And basically everyone else was they, um, and they was sort yeah. of your safe bet for, you know, really everyone because it's sort of like, you know, they- Universally neutral. Universally yeah. neutral in some ways. Um, and, and so personally, I don't care. Like, I don't have a pronoun- I mean, I put the he, him in brackets just to be, you know, sort of supportive of the cause or whatever, but, you know, you mm -hmm. whatever you want. Um, um, although, but there's some of them in that list that you call me that and I'll be like, huh? Like, I won't even know what that word is. So, like, they is mm -hmm. what I've heard a lot of. Um, but there seems mm -hmm. to be, like, I heard I heard a reference one where there, there was something like 50 different, you know, pronouns out there. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, a whole bunch of neo-pronouns, yeah. Where, where did they all come from? I don't know if you know the answer to that, and 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 I don't want you to sort of go through the list here, but um, mm -hmm. why are there so many different ones? Maybe is the question. Got it. Um, I can't really speak to where they came from yeah. in that, like all words, they're made up words, sure, exactly, just like every other word yep. in existence in True. every language. Uh, and the purpose that they serve is just that, so if you put a bunch of uh, gender, people that use the label genderqueer, right? Yeah. You take 10 people who use the word genderqueer for them to describe themselves in a room, all of their experiences and relating to that label are going to look vastly different. Yeah. Um, and in service of that, neopronouns are just like things that people pick for themselves that are most like th that they feel most accurately represents their identity mm. or how they want to be referred to. Uh, there's people that use it pronouns, for example. Mm. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep. And there's like, there's not a like flow chart of gender queer people use mm. these 20 versions mm. and gender fluid people use these 20 and like mm. gender non-binary people use these and like agender people use these. Cause if you go dive into the nuances of, um, 
the various gender identity labels or sexual identity labels that mm-hmm. exist, there's so many. And largely, it's just a function of like, some of them have very little differences, but those little differences are super salient to the people that mm-hmm. it's salient to. Mm-hmm. Um, my, um, I don't know all of them either. No. I'm not necessarily fluent in all of them either. Uh, again, it depends. Fluency develops with practice, right? Mm-hmm. So if I don't have to use a pronoun, and even if I preferably am aware of it, it I might still stumble for a minute till like fluency building happens. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that a lot of people struggle with they, them pronouns, for example. Um, and some people use they as singular, some people use they as plural. Like it's a it's a world of like language is complex, yes. right? Um, the rule of thumb that I just go with is just ask people what they use and just use what they say to use for them. Yep. Uh, and again, depending on privileged location and also depending on how out people are in different places, they might say, Hey, don't use my these pronouns in this room, or use or use these pronouns for me in this room because that's just easier. Avoids conflict, whatever their reasons are, right? Um, so I always just check in. I always just ask people and like, what pronouns would you prefer me to use uh, here? If I'm aware of like, if I have a learning history with them, where I'm like, I'm aware that in some rooms they use different pronouns. Um, and if I'm not, I just ask. Mm-hmm. Asking is just a lot easier than misgendering like someone that. and then going through that horror, awkward, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I truly believe. And then the person is left being like, yes, we know. Like, we know you didn't, you, you're not a horrible person. You give to charity. We get it. Like, uh, <laughs> stop making me like validate your, validate your discomfort here. Like yeah. becoming comfortable with discomfort is a big part of that. Just be like, thank you for correcting me and move on yeah. uh, and save everyone the hassle yeah, yeah, of yeah. like, stewing in in awkward horrible interactions um that don't really do anybody favors it's just a lot of like i need to feel comfortable again and like establish equilibrium and that's not the other person's job um so don't make it their job but yeah it's really uh yeah it's a it's a function of like it developed largely because of you know Different people were finding different things that were meaningful to them, and then other people started using them, and now you have more and more people using neo pronouns and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. No, like I, all language. I, and I like the idea of, of sort of. I mean, if I even if someone even asked me why I use he him, I probably couldn't answer the mm-hmm. question. I don't know. Yeah, because I do. You know, because I just I always have. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and what, what why does it even matter? Uh, and I think I think you know I think the I think that that's maybe the bigger point is you know it's what they prefer that's what they prefer is what matters not why what why they do it yeah. or why they chose it and 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 you know I, yeah I think the simple you know sort of action of just ask yeah. is 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 mm-hmm. is great and uh, you know and I think a lot of folks wouldn't even think to, that they could just ask that they're waiting for sort yeah. of well I don't see it in your email signature so I guess I'll just wait a year until you put mm-hmm. it in there. Um, but, but just, just ask and then, okay, it's whatever. And maybe it'll be one of the 50 that I've never even heard of. Can you say that again? Cause I don't even know what that word is. Oh, okay. It's yeah. blah. Okay. I will call you blah from now on. Cause that's what you prefer yeah. and, uh, and just leave it at that. And that should be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's like no reason you're, anyone is entitled to anyone's like rationale for why yeah. they're doing the thing that they're yeah. doing. We don't ask, like, for example, how many people have asked you why you use he, him pronouns? Probably not a lot of people or anybody for that matter. Um, Like, it's never questioned because it's just assumed that they, 
the the assumption is that they are privy to why you're using those pronouns. Yeah. Uh, the questions come from when people, and they're not really privy. It's just that both of you have a shared like a uh, shared agreement uh, based on a social construct, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people do ask about like, oh, why are these your pronouns and things like that, it really comes from a space of like. Not realizing that actually that's not a question that they would ask anybody. And why do they think that they're like, what, like, there's a certain degree of entitlement in like, I need to, I need to understand your weirdness so I can approve your weirdness. Yes. Yeah, totally. And without my approval, we cannot exist in the shared context. And actually that's deeply untrue. (laughs) So, um, you neither need to understand or approve. You just need to respect basically. So. And you shared a great resource uh, when we first started this conversation that folks, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, really have a lot of questions, you know, because you don't have to burden folks to sort of answer those questions for you. Uh, there's, you shared a great resource called Google. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know if, if you... It's my favorite one. Yeah, if, if I can spell the pronoun, I can look it up and figure out where it came from and, and uh, mm-hmm. get an idea of the origin or the etymology of the term. Um, and, Absolutely. And, and, and dig into that as as I you know as my ADHD brain goes down a rabbit hole and starts learning mm-hmm. all these words and and that's fine. But it's it's not sort of up to the individual to them yeah. give me a history lesson on where that term came. Mm-hmm. From. Yeah, and I'm less averse to now people asking me questions that are seemingly intrusive, mostly because I just have better boundaries and understanding right. around it. So I feel more comfortable being like. Actually, you could just look it up. Yep. Here's a great resource yeah. for you. Um, as opposed to part of the reason that I feel like, just stop asking me and like Google it. Yeah. I was like, okay, let me just say that. And mm-hmm. let me just like not answer it and be like, here's a great resource for you to learn more about this thing. Yeah. So I'm less and less averse to people asking me questions. And I'm more, and again, this is just me. So uh, different right. people, different boundaries, different totally. like sort of resources and limits. but. Um, because I've actively decided to make this part of the thing that I do in the world, uh, I'm super open to having these conversations with people, but, and with the, with the, like, with being, uh, explicit about my own, like, sometimes that may change for me. So I'll let you know if that does, but right now it's this and that's fine. So ask away type thing. Um, yeah. So I... I'm not as good as Google, but I can do some of the, at least I can tell you what to Google. So Google Google might give me a (laughs) bit of a shorter answer. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, Most definitely will. Yeah, But it'll give me 110 billion answers. So I I have to pick one. Also true. You know, in in some ways, I think I'd rather have your answer because at least I know it will end. Um, um, (laughs) Right on. You mentioned research at the beginning. You like doing research. Are, yeah. are you doing any research mm-hmm. right now? So my research is broadly theoretical research. Yeah. So I land, I more recently landed in the conceptual realm. So right now, in fact, I'm working on a paper on gender, hmm. which God, maybe saying it out loud in a public space will make me actually write, <laughs> finish writing the thing. Yeah. Um so I've been leaning more into like contextual behavior science the last couple of years. Right. So I've been using that perspective a lot. Um, with the Louisiana Contextual Science Research Group, we put out a paper on privilege and we put out a paper on affirmative sexual consent. 
Um, so those were two things that I worked on more recently. There's a book chapter on values and gender and academia um, that comes out. God knows when uh, publishing is such a weird thing, uh, but it will come out at some point. Um, I've collaborated with Warner and August, both on a chapter for the social justice book that came out yes. a couple of years ago, where we talked about like some of these things with respect to the queer community. Uh, or like some of these like perspectives with the queer community um yeah so hands in a lot of pies but like a lot of like conceptual work that builds into practical implications is largely where i land and like the consultation stuff is always ongoing so there's folks that are always asking for supports for their specific needs or you know client related work uh, are you, you know, are you like with consulting with other professionals mostly is that what you mean yeah yeah and, you know, mentoring as part of my job now, right. uh, teaching students. Uh, so, yeah, I I do all of that. Yes. Awesome. With, really cool. With this stuff. Really cool. Well, we'll watch out for some of that stuff. And if I can of find course. some links, I'll, I'll stick them in the show notes. Um, cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a good chat. I, I got a lot of this. Um, I, think, I think I'm going to need to have 18 more of these. With I you hope it was time. useful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean. The third secret word is science. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll forget about it all in about an hour, but um, and, and my, that's my fine. Brain will that's why you have a podcast. Round. Exactly, that, I can I can replay that it over and over again. Product is great, one hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's why I've, I've been getting into the editing piece now, which has been great because it means I'm I'm, I'm I have to listen to them all over again a couple times, and so uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the last few episodes have been a lot uh, a lot uh, more ingrained in my brain, which has been great. Uh, and this one will be no different. Um, um, and also, whenever I use this headset, I find I actually have to edit out even more background noise. So I'll be I'll be focusing on yours quite a bit more than some of the other ones. So <laughs> it'll, it'll be drilled. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Super cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm very excited and honored.